I love what women's ministry has done for New Hope. I know many individuals are here because, ladies, you came to women's study and checked out New Hope and came through it, so Lori's doing a phenomenal job for leading women's ministry. Very grateful for that program. I'm going to ask you, if you can, in a minute to turn to Genesis 39. We're going to go there, but before we do, I would really love to pray with you first. Let's pray together, church. Lord God, we recognize that um, while we've taken time to set aside to be here this morning and those who are joining us virtually right now set this time aside to come into your presence and to learn from you and your word, we recognize and we admit right up front there's a lot of distractions. The potential for cell phones to go off and for us to have wandering thoughts and be thinking about lunch, it's just palpable. So we admit that, and we ask that you would help us to stay away from the distractions, but rather focused on you. So I would ask, God, that you would use this time right now to shape us according to how you want us to understand your word, and that your Holy Spirit would have freedom in our lives to work on us right now. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Feel free to get out your phone, by the way, if you have maybe the Bible on electronically. I'm not telling you not to use that. But uh, you can follow along that way. There's a Bible in the chair racks in front of you if you didn't bring one with you, or you'll see the verses up on the screen. In the last couple of weeks, we've been learning exactly how God is involved in the lives of people who suffer by looking at the story of Joseph. And what we learned last week and landed on is that godly people do suffer for godly reasons. Godly people, good people, do suffer for godly reasons, and in the midst of it, God is still with them. He hasn't abandoned us when we're going through hard times. Peter emphasized this in 1 Peter 3. Look, look with me again at the screen where we left off last week. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And he's just emphasizing the fact, the reality, that righteous people do suffer, and they suffer for the sake of righteousness, and you're still blessed. God is still with you. He hasn't abandoned you. Where I want to take you this next point is to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's quote, and it's in your notes this morning, but I want you to see it on the screen so you can process what he wrote. He said, the events of our own lives and all their complexity are not accidents or cruel whims of an unattached God. They are purposeful, and contained within them is the possibility of spiritual growth with a deeper connection to God. And he's right, there is the possibility of a deeper connection to God. There's the possibility of spiritual growth, but it all depends on the attitude that you bring to the table. What's your attitude going into these situations determines how you're going to come out of it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn can write that because he's a Nobel Prize winning author. Uh, uh, he, he got the prize in 1974, I think it was, for the materials he had written as a result of coming out of prison. Here's the background. In World War II, he served in the military for Russia in Leningrad and in Stalingrad. He was conscripted and forced into military fighting. And if you know anything about Russians who survived World War II in Leningrad and in Stalingrad, they had a brutal, brutal environment fighting Nazi Germany. But not long after that, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested by his own country. They claimed he was a dissident for writing things about God. And they put him in the gulag system for eight years where he was forced in the Russian prison camps to go down into the mines and harvest mineral for Russia. Out of that, coming out of that, an individual like Solzhenitsyn can say, it really depends on your attitude. 
When you're going through the hard times, there is the possibility of going deeper spiritually with God. And there's the possibility of having a stronger connection with God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn knew what Joseph knew, that God is so great, he can work out his purposes even when people are doing the worst that they could possibly do. You perhaps have known that, perhaps you've walked through hard times, but knowing that truth, being reminded of that truth is such a source of huge encouragement when you're going through the difficulties. I wanna say right up front, predicated first and foremost, the reason that can be true for you, predicated on the reality that you actually have a relationship with God, and that begins with Jesus. And as a result of having a relationship with God, then you have to take on this attitude of trust trusting a sovereign God that he knows best. And you know what that takes? It takes determination. Because it's really easy to say it on Sunday morning in a platform where it's room temperature controlled and the lights are on and we all like each other, at least I think we do, and we're just hanging out together and drinking coffee and it seems very simple to say that. But it's another thing to say that when you're coming out of the prison system when you're coming out of slavery like Joseph, that God can work in amazing ways to accomplish his purposes even when people are doing their worst to you. And that's why I say it's predicated first and foremost on having a relationship with God. Here's a point of clarification. Often, Christians are confused when things seem to spin out of control in their life thinking that maybe God has abandoned them. What the world sometimes calls fate, as, as though chance is a thing, as though chance is bringing some type of personal and global trauma to my life, as though chance are causing events to unfold. That mindset believes everything is rooted in chance, as though chance is a thing, and chance is not a thing. God is sovereign, God is in control. Daniel definitively addressed this very issue when he wrote about this reality in Daniel chapter 4. If you haven't read Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament, I encourage you to do that. Look at what he said here in verse 35. He, meaning God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, Daniel's just emphasizing the reality that God doesn't answer to anyone and to presume otherwise as though we can lecture him and suggest that he back off? Well, that's just the height of arrogance. I say all these things for this reason. Once again, these things are reminding us of the reality that if you are in a relationship with God, that relationship with him demands, it absolutely requires an attitude of trust. Do I trust him no matter what? Take that question into what we're about to look at here. Because Joseph's story, it forces us to process both the personal struggles that we go through and the global struggles that we see. It forces us to process it through an eternal lens. Joseph is a real individual, a real young man with real tangible dreams. And he had the family status and he's heir to the empire, and he has the coat, meaning he has the position, and he has a future that's very bright working at Jacob Incorporated. He's believing that he knows where he's headed. But the fulfillment of the dreams that God gave him, hear that, 
the dreams that God gave him, the fulfillment of those will only come after a lengthy time of purifying and testing and trial. Because God preordained. If you're not familiar with that word, it means God chose, God decided. God ordained that Joseph would suffer for a purpose, a very specific purpose. Uh, from the advantage of where we're at 4,000 years later, we understand that the larger purpose was God wanted Israel to be in Egypt. And then He would bring them out and ultimately place them in the promised land. But if we zoom back from 30,000 feet and we look at this view and we understand what's going on here, we come to the realization that through the eternal lens, we have to see that our dwelling in our future promised land one day, that place that God has intended for us to be, it entails a lot of trials and a lot of difficulties along the way. God said to Abraham, that's exactly what's going to happen to your people, Abraham. Think with me mentally back to the summer when we were in Genesis chapter 15 and God speaking to Abraham. I'll take you to the verse on the screen and watch what God told Abraham about what would happen to his offspring. Verse 12, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So really early on, way back in Genesis 15, God announced to Abraham, your children and your children's children and their children after them are going to do 400 years in slavery. Eventually, Abram, they're going to inherit the promised land. So we discover that that slavery is not without a purpose. Now, what seems strange to the casual reader of the Bible is, is this thought that pops in your head. If you just read it casually and you don't pay a lot of attention, the thought pops in your mind of, why not just give them the land now? Why make them wait for it? Why go through slavery? Well, indeed, Israel will come back 400 years later and they will destroy the Amorite nation. But why make them wait? How do we understand that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 9 actually gives us the answer. Look with me at Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going, to possess, going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. There's one component. Here's the second one, and I think it's even a bigger component and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God wants his promise to be validated, that his word would be validated, that his promise would be kept. So the taking of the land is indeed God's judgment for centuries of wickedness. And in the meantime, he's going to give the Amorites 400 years to repent. Like, get your act together, people. But they don't. So 400 years go by, and while that's going on, God says that His people are going to be in a land in slavery for 400 years. So we see this overarching principle from this 30,000-foot view that's a picture of your life on earth. You and I should not be surprised when God says to us in Acts 14.22 that when we get to the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be the result of many tribulations. You're going to go through a lot of trials. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God, not as though you can earn it, 
We're just getting a reality check from the authors of the New Testament saying there's going to be hard times before you get there. So how does it come about that the people of God actually end up in Egypt? Psalm 105 kind of amplifies it and goes right to the point. It says this in verse 17, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. It goes on to say in chapter 105 that the word of the Lord tested him. In other words, purified him or proved him. Here's a quick review if you weren't here in the last couple weeks just to catch you up. Joseph has been sold as a slave. He's 17 years old. He finds himself in a caravan with the Midianite traders because of this one reason. Without warning, his brothers pounced on him, grabbed him, stripped him of his clothes, threw him into a well to die of exposure and starvation, but then changed their mind and decided they needed to make some money on the deal, so they sold him to some Midianite traders who put him on an auction block, and they sold him like a common piece of furniture. And Joseph foreshadows what's going to happen to the entire nation of Israel. They'll all end up in Egypt, and they'll all end up as slaves. So here's where we left off last week, chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. We learned two things about Potiphar last week. He's not just an Egyptian court. He's under Pharaoh, second or third in command. He's an officer of Pharaoh, meaning he's a military man. And we discovered he's the captain of the bodyguard, which makes him a professional killer. The Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning, you see up on the screen, this word, tabak, it means to be a butcher. But not a butcher that cuts you a piece of steak to put it on your dinner plate, but a butcher of people. He's that skilled at killing people, and he knows all the ways to do it. So as this chief executioner, you know he's nobody to fool around with. You don't want to take his position lightly. He's a seasoned military man, and he has the power over life and death. So Joseph is in a country and in a culture that he doesn't understand. They're speaking a language that he doesn't know, and he's been sold as a common slave and forced into a situation that's worse than the pit that he's been dragged out of. If archaeologically you go back and try and discover the kind of time that Joseph lived in, he lived around 1895 or so B.C., which would put him in the reign of Pharaoh Sesotris. Pharaoh Sesotris was on the throne around 1898 B.C. to 1879 B.C., and he ruled over a time of great prosperity in Egypt. This is the Pharaoh who's on the throne during the life of Joseph, which would make it the Middle Kingdom, the 12th Dynasty. Now, if you found yourself in Egypt in the 12th dynasty, you'd find exactly what you expect. Magnificent architecture, structure that boggles the mind of architects even today. Builders who were conscripting lots and lots and lots of slaves. That's how they built all those magnificent structures. Well, you came typically into slavery through one of four ways. One would be if your family sold you because they didn't have enough money and they were starving and so they would sell their own children off. Another way would be if you were a prisoner of war and your nation had been conquered. Or perhaps you were in the prison system because you were a criminal and then you would be sold as a slave. In those systems, people were treated as though they were furniture because the government of Egypt was massive. It had thousands of bureaucrats 
lots and lots of scribes to keep really good records, a very, very large government, a system of irrigation that took advantage of the annual flooding of the Nile, which meant they always had water for their crops, they had lots of food to feed lots of people, but you would also discover a country that was shackled by religious superstition. So they've got 2,000 gods that they worship during this time, and their emphasis was on preparing for the afterlife. They studied the medical arts, they studied the stars, they, they studied everything that they could, and they became really good at embalming people. They studied modern science that they knew of at the time. They created a calendar that had 365 and a quarter days. Lots of horses, lots of chariots, a well-developed military. But notice as you read the passage, nothing is said about the phenomenal adjustments that had to take place in Joseph's life as a 17-year-old young man coming into this country. And he sold as a slave. Let's go forward into verse 1, chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Keep going with me. Verse 5. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So there's declarative statements that came out right away. Four times it says Jehovah was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Just as he was with Abraham, just as he was with Isaac, just as he was with Jacob. But did you notice there's no evidence of any special revelation that's given to Joseph? God appeared in person to Abraham. God appeared in person to Isaac and to Jacob. But there's no personal appearance to Joseph, which means for you and I, Joseph is a lot more like you and I than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has to go with what he knows about God's Word. He has to know what he knows about the character of God and the nature of God. So he's going through a huge trial without a personal revelation from God, which makes him more like us than we understand. And Scripture also says Joseph is prosperous. He's a successful guy. And you might step back and say, what? How? He's a slave. How can he be successful? Well, watch with me on the screen. Verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, which means to us in a declarative way, when you're faithful to God, God can make you successful even in the worst of circumstances. Even though things are going horrible, God can bring good out of it. Verse 3, his master saw that Jehovah was with him. That doesn't mean that Potiphar knew God. He's an Egyptian, probably participating in the worship of the 2,000 gods popular in Egypt. So he's a pagan. But what he does see, he can see the results of God in Joseph's life. So he promotes Joseph. 
Verse 4 says, and Joseph found favor in his sight. Verse 5 says, and he made him an overseer, which is just like what happened with Joseph with his own father's flocks back in Hebron. He's been given administrative responsibilities. And so these promotions brought blessings to Potiphar's house. Verse 5, from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And what you're seeing here, church, is an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. Well, Potiphar blessed Joseph. God, in turn, blessed Potiphar. So this Egyptian is receiving all these blessings because of his correct relationship to a descendant of Abraham. Joseph becomes this fantastic example of someone who trusts God and is making the very best out of very horrible circumstances. Scripture says that people like that really stand out. Let me take you to a passage from the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verse 29, says this, do you see a man who excels in his work? That one, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. But as we read things like this, we should remind ourselves very quickly, this is not a story of the success of Joseph. This is a story of the faithfulness of God because we serve a faithful God, don't we, New Hope? He always keeps His Word. He's faithful to His promises. Now, best we can tell by doing the mathematics, it looks like Joseph served in Potiphar's house about nine years somewhere between seven and nine years. So put, himself in the, put him in the range of a 25, a 26, maybe 27-year-old at the most. During all that time, he does not have to tell Potiphar that the Lord is with him. It's like he doesn't have to say, look at me, God is really with me. No, Potiphar can see it for himself. This is a hardworking, diligent young man. And we see in verse 5, all that came to him, meaning to Potiphar, all that he continued to accrue, he put it underneath Joseph's charge. So not only the things that he owns, but all the things that he's gaining, he's being blessed by God, growing more and more in wealth, and it's all being put underneath Joseph's oversight. So check that. From the auction block of a slave to the second most powerful position in the court of Pharaoh underneath this executioner. But this is a truism. With greater success comes a greater measure of trust. And with a greater measure of trust comes times of vulnerability. You can expect times of temptation in days of prosperity. You doing well right now? Check to make sure that you're not vulnerable in these situations. Because it's there that the tempter lies much more so than during the times when things are not going so well. It's when we get puffed up, when we get filled with ourself. So Joseph is determining his own schedule. He's setting the agenda for Potiphar's house. He's organizing all of the estate. He's managing all the income that comes in. Everything has been put in his hands. Potiphar doesn't even bother checking on Joseph. He has that much trust in him, and the trust is total except for this little detail we get in verse 6. It says, except for the food that he ate. This is important because it plays into the story later on. Except for the food he ate means Egyptians won't eat with foreigners. 
they won't sit down to the table with them. And this was discovered by archaeology about 100 years ago to validate the Bible that Egyptians absolutely would say, hands off, you're not sitting at my dinner table. I'll feed you, I'll share food with you, but we don't sit down together. So Joseph couldn't have control over his meals. And then comes this very surprising, very significant sentence in verse 6. He was handsome in form and in appearance. Young men pay special attention to this especially. The NIV says that Joseph was well-built and handsome, okay? And I'm not going to try and teach you Hebrew this morning, but I want you to see the phrase, Yafeh Ayin, and it's in your notes this morning, and I just want to teach you the meaning behind it, okay? Very first, the, the fra- first phrase that's used here, Yafeh, it actually is talking about being beautiful. Now, this is written in the masculine, so we know this is written about a man, so we have a, a beautiful man. And look at the definition that goes along with it. He's the fairest one. He's handsome. He's sleek, okay? All right? It's not that he knows it. It's not that he's full of himself, but that's the way Scripture describes him. And then it says the word ayin. And ayin is a focus of the eye. So like when you're looking at a landscape and something catches your attention, it might be a beautiful landscape, but there's something gorgeous in the center, that concept of the eye being drawn to this thing that's beautiful, Yafeh Ayin, is speaking of a really handsome man. This guy is a stud, all right? There's only two individuals in the Bible who's spoken of this way in the Old Testament, Joseph and King David. So we've got a 25, 26-year-old man who has everything. He has the respect of his employer, He has authority, he has power, he has access to very confidential information and the complete trust of the people around him. And to top it all off, this guy's got movie star good looks. So he has everything. And then we hit verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now that's pretty direct, right? That's what you would call bold. Notice when it happened, though. The timing is after these events, after his elevated status. He's been working for Potiphar seven to nine years. But it's after he gets responsibility and he comes into this position of power. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So success made Joseph ripe for attack from the enemy. Most guys I know would be caught off guard in this moment. If nothing else, momentarily, at the minimum, flattered but not Joseph. Without hesitation, he's so absolutely secure in himself and who his God is, he responds with equal boldness coming back to her, which really speaks to what Scripture talks about because Joseph had an understanding of what he was facing. Proverbs chapter 23, look with me on the screen. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Well, Joseph has already been in a deep pit, right? He's already been in a narrow well. He doesn't want to go back there again. So he understands he has to have determination in this moment. 
I told you it's one thing to say things like this on a Sunday morning on a platform. Put yourself in his shoes. It takes enormous determination when you've got everything going for you to put your stake in the ground and say, I will not. And not just once, but day after day after day. And he explains why he won't. He says, first of all, you're another man's wife. I can't go there. And he doesn't want to violate the trust that's been put in him. And thirdly, he says, even if no one else found out, God knows. God knows what's going on. So he responds to her, how can I do this great evil? So if you remember nothing else, remember those two words that we see in verse 8. He refused. Look with me on the screen at it. Genesis 39, verse 8. He refused. If you forget everything else, don't forget that because he, in a difficult situation, is willing to say no. You can say no to temptation. So he resists her and he stares her down and then says in verse 9, how could I sin against God? Which raises this to a whole new level. This is no ordinary temptation. It's not like you're on a diet and somebody slid a plate of brownies in front of you and tempted you. This is a temptation to defy God. And we recognize Joseph is not a stone. He's a guy with emotion. He's a young man in his mid-20s. He's got all the drive of every other young man in his mid-20s. And you can fully expect she's gorgeous. She's part of the royal court of Pharaoh. So she's going to be spectacular in her appearance. And it's not like this a temptation happened only one time in one day and he's out. But this is a repeated temptation daily. Look with me at verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So we're told that he's making every possible effort to avoid being in her presence. And she avoids taking no for an answer and isn't about to be ignored. So she presses Joseph day after day after day. And the resistance only intensifies her drive to bring the determination to a reality. This is a good moment to pause and talk about temptation for a minute. James writes about this very thing going on in a real-world circumstance in your life today. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Pay attention to this. But each one, each one of us, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. In other words, James is clarifying for us this inner desire thing. It indeed works with the outer bait. If the bait is out there, the inner desire works with it. The desire, though, is already there, and you don't even have to wake it up. It's awake. It's just looking for opportunity. So what James is clarifying is this temptation draws you in to give in to your own lust, the thing that's in you. And if it repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats, your resistance weakens and you've been enticed. Potiphar's wife somehow knows that and she drops the bait. And she exposes Joseph to whatever this bait is and she's doing it day after day after day. And each time, Joseph is refusing and finally, she sets the ultimate trap. Verse 11, now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the household was there inside. 
She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. So just picture it. The house is quiet. No servant is around. I wonder how that happened. Clearly, she sent them out. She made sure that nobody else would be around, and then she makes her move. Taking no for an answer is not an option, so she physically grabs hold of him so tightly that when he jerks back, she has his robe. Scripture gives us one command in situations like this, one command and one command only, and the command is run. 2 Timothy 2.22 says this, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. The Greek word that's used there, fuego, it means literally, physically, run away. Get away from it. Get out of the environment. Do not reason with it. Do not think about it. Run. Physically leave. And if you didn't hear me clearly on that, run for your life and get out. Because of this, if you try to reason with temptation or play around with your thoughts, you will yield. You can't fight it. So the Spirit of God forcefully says, run, which is exactly what Joseph did, verse 12. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. There's this old phrase about the, the wrath of a woman. It has, hell has no fury like the wrath of a woman scorned, right? I got it wrong in the first service, and a guy corrected me on it really quick. <laughs> I assume through experience, I don't know. <laughs> but, but it's true. Hell, they say, hell hath no fury like the wrath of a woman scorned. Every ounce of Mrs. Potiphar in this moment now turns to rage. She's furious. She's been rejected by him, and now she despises him. And the result is an accusation of rape, verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she immediately concocts a plan in her mind, and she draws the servants, the men of the household together, and she begins lying. This Jew, and I screamed, and whether they believed her or not, I don't know, but I'm sure she did scream, but it's not a scream of fear, it's a scream of rage. This is not a scream of rape. Her screams are those of a woman who's been scorned, and she's so enraged that this handsome young Joseph will resist her temptation and that he wants nothing to do with her. She wants him dealt with. Verse 16. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home, and she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So this scorned woman proves to be a very crafty, subtle woman who can put together an excuse. If you notice the flow of what was going on, the first thing she did is she went to the servants to build her case to get them on her side and using the pronoun, he brought him to us, bringing them into the group saying, you're part of this too. And then she puts the blame on the husband by saying, you brought the Hebrew to us, which expresses a degree of bitterness here but then very subtly changes the pronoun from us to me. You brought him to us so that he could make sport of me. So the servants are mad at Joseph, 
And now the wife is trying to get the husband mad at Joseph. And he's been mocking me, and she wants revenge, so she's using this piece of circumstantial evidence with this garment sitting beside her. I'm sure you can picture it. She's on her bed, robe sitting there. I don't know what Joseph's wearing. Somebody must have covered him up by this point until Potiphar gets home. Question, New Hope Church. Has Joseph done anything wrong to this point? No. Is God at work in his life? Yes. So he hasn't done anything wrong. God is at work in his life, and he's become a target of the enemy. For some reason, it's comforting to humans to think that these type of situations catch God by surprise, as though he couldn't possibly have seen this coming. He would have never let that happen to a godly man. Rather than stepping back and saying, the reality is this is part of a bigger plan, even though there's fallen humans working in the midst of it, God's got a larger purpose that he wants to accomplish. So verse 19, now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. And if you're a friend of Joseph's and you're a praying person at that time, you'd want to say, please, God, if there was ever a time you're going to rescue someone, rescue him now. Reward this guy. Reward him for saying no day after day. Reward him for running instead of yielding. But God's not through with shaping Joseph because God's not like us. And he can see far beyond the situation. And he knows he needs to do deep work in Joseph's life to prepare him for the greatness that's in store with him, for him. So with that, God remains silent. Even though Joseph is trapped, God remains silent. Say amen if you agree with this. Sometimes heaven is silent. <laughs> Seems like more than sometime, doesn't it? Seems like a lot of the time. God, why are you so silent? Why can't you help me through this? Because God's working a plan. Verse 19 says that Potiphar's anger burned. Now the text doesn't clearly say who he's angry at. Is he angry at Joseph or is he angry at his wife? Because this has resulted in the goose that laid the golden egg going into the dungeon. And no longer is there going to be a blessing on his house like there has been. So is he angry at his wife or is he angry at Joseph? We don't know. But ultimately, he had to put him in prison. But it appears that he didn't believe his wife. The prison is where the king's royal prisoners are held and tortured. See, other prisoners in the Egyptian culture, they're either immediately executed or they're put into slave labor working on the edifices of the country. But he's been put into prison, and he's not killed. Under Egyptian law, the chief of the executioners has the right and the privilege to execute Joseph. See, it appears that he's not convinced of the story, and the evidence is that Potiphar doesn't believe his wife. But even so, still, Joseph ends up in a dungeon 
So imagine you're 25 or 26 years old, and you're the one that's been locked away in chains, and you're being tortured, and I'll show you that in a minute. You're not only innocent, you've resisted temptation over and over. He's done what is right, and he suffered for it, and time drags on, and day after day turns into week after week, month after month, year after year. What's going through your mind in those moments? Like myriads of other people down through history, Joseph is suffering while doing what is right and much more than you probably think. Psalm 105 emphasizes what they did to him. Look at me on the screen, Psalm 105 verse 18. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until that time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him proved him, refined him. Afflicting his feet with feathers is a description of the ancient world of how they tortured people. Locking him in irons while they did whatever they did, but somehow during this period of time, somehow his response to the torture causes the warden of the jail, the chief of the jail, to take a different attitude toward Joseph and releases him from the torture. But during this time, while he's waiting to figure out what's going on, he has time to ponder the meaning of the dreams that God gave him, and he has to learn that God's delays are not God's denials. And maybe you haven't learned that yet in your life. God's delays are not God's denials. It's just not God's timing yet. James speaks about this in chapter 1. He says, when you're going through really difficult times and this temptation issue, Look with me on the screen. When you, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience is really, really hard when you're going through those hard times. So it comes 360 degrees all the way back to where we started. We're talking about an attitude, an attitude of trust. Do you believe that God has your best in store for you? In other words, do you trust Him no matter what? Maybe right now you're not facing any kind of temptation that's really serious in your life. Maybe you're not facing a huge issue, but everyone, I guarantee you, everyone hearing this can say, I do know what you're talking about, Mark. I've faced that before. I've encountered really serious temptation. Two big things. Do not, in those moments, be gentle with your emotions, and do not be confused by the immediate results. I'll amplify that for you in just a moment. Joseph had it made. Economically, this guy's secure. Vacationally, he's respected, and he's trusted. Personally, he's handsome, he's charming, and he's hardworking. Many people allow those very things in their life to weaken them. Instead of making them stronger, it weakens their resolve. And in the midst of that, temptation comes along. And temptation always has just the right words. Who's ever going to find out? We don't have to tell anybody. Just this once. And then never again. Or my personal favorite, God understands. Ha! No, he doesn't. He doesn't condone it. 
See, temptation will work on your emotions constantly, begging for understanding. That's why I say, do not be gentle with your emotions in these situations. Do you remember how rugged you just saw Joseph be? How rugged he was? Verse 8, he refused. Verse 9, he called it exactly what it was. It's a great evil. It's a sin against God. And if you have to, get downright rude about it and run. Don't be confused also, though. Don't be confused by the immediate results because the immediate results may mean this. You, you may lose your job. You may lose your boyfriend. You may lose your girlfriend. You may lose your social circle. You might be bumped out of the club. It might cost you. But don't be confused by the immediate results. I know this to be true. Whatever is tempting you may make you feel like you're in bondage, just like Joseph is a slave. But remember, remember this every single time. You were freed from the bondage of sin. Jesus freed you from that. God brought you out. He said, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're enslaved to me, not to sin, because of my amazing grace. So New Hope Church right now, if you name the name of Jesus, if you claim Jesus in your life, name it fully and name it completely and keep yourself morally clean from this point forward, regardless of whatever happened yesterday, a week ago, or 10 years ago. He's the God of grace, right? He's an amazing God, an amazing God of grace. So as an amazing God of grace, put your stake in the ground and say, I know what you did for me. I'm not going back there again. I'm not going to repeat that kind of behavior. Keep yourself morally clean from this day forward. You owe it to your character, but more than that, you owe it to the God who sent his son to die for you. Amen? Amen. Let's praise him and pray right now. Father, we pray and praise you at the same time that you have given us a path. You said you have set us free and we're no longer bondservants to sin, but we're bondservants to you. So help us to remember that, God. This week, especially going into the weeks ahead of us when we're so tempted to the things of the world, remind us, remind us of who we are and who we belong to. And it takes resolve and it takes an attitude on our part and we willingly recognize that, Father, a determination. We, we want to be as determined as Joseph is. We see him as a model, as an example. So thank you, God, for including this story giving us something to look at as an example of what we can do. But we recognize we cannot do it in our own strength. So we need the power of your Holy Spirit. We need the power that you grant us. So Father, I pray that in grace and mercy, you would cause the Spirit to be stronger in us as we walk, walk forward and take on this week. We ask for this in the majestic name of the one who died for us, who is resurrected and is coming again one day in glory. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front. I'd love to meet you, but in the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.